0: Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and we're going to be taking a look at chapter 45 today. So if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out and get ready, you can start turning to Genesis chapter 45. Now, Catherine mentioned if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to get one off the back counter. And if you did get one of those Bibles, it's going to be on page 36 of that Bible. That might help you out a little bit. But of course, you're welcome to use any uh, phone app or anything you might have. So the title of today's message is called The Pain, The Penitence, and The Providence. Uh, we're gonna be going to be continuing to look at this interaction between Joseph and his brothers. that has been going on for several chapters now. Uh, but before we completely do that, let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it proclaims. We thank you for the chance to read your word together as a fellowship of believers. We ask that your spirit would move in our hearts this morning. May we turn our eyes and our hearts towards you. Please be with me as I share the word and with everyone in this room as they hear it. And we continue to pray for Grady as he wraps up his trip. Please bless him and protect him as he travels home. Please give him health and rest, as we are all excited to hear about the amazing things he has done to help the churches in Kenya. Amen. So as we jump into this passage in Genesis, it's helpful uh, to refresh our minds a little bit with the backstory, since today's chapter jumps in kind of at an awkward spot right in the middle of the interaction between Joseph and his brothers. So in chapter 44 that we looked at last week, we saw the brothers being tested once again, but this time in a different way. Joseph had had his cup hidden in the bag of his brother Benjamin before Benjamin and the brothers left to take all of their food and supplies back to the land of Canaan. And Joseph lets them head out for a little bit and then sends his steward to catch up with them and accuse them of stealing. They search all the bags, they find the cup in Benjamin's bag, and so the entire group then returns back to the city. And it's in that chapter that Judah steps up and pleads with Joseph that he can't take Benjamin as uh, his servant, as punishment for the crime, because basically it would cause their father to die of a broken heart because of the grief. And in fact, he Uh, basically says that he would carry that sadness so deeply to the afterlife. You may remember there was kind of that weird verse in there about him taking his gray hairs of sorrow down to Sheol, and that's what it was talking about there. So Judah asks if he can take the place of Benjamin so that Benjamin can return home for the sake of their father, Jacob. And so that leads us to our text this morning in chapter 45, which picks up and says, so if you want to read along with me, you can. It's a little bit of a long one here. Then Jacob could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. And bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So, long chapter, but in this interaction, we finally see the reveal of Joseph to his brothers. And as we see the reveal and some of the after effects in this passage, um, I was reminded of some of the major themes and points of view that are continuing here. So this morning we're going to talk through each one of them briefly, and we're going to be looking at the pain and the trauma and the healing that came with it for Joseph. We're going to be looking at the penitence or the guilt and the shame that the brothers carried from what they had done to Joseph. And then finally we're going to be looking at the providence of God which has been over this interaction the entire time and is ultimately one of the major themes of the book of the Genesis of the book of Genesis. And so we're going to go ahead and start with the pain. Verse 1 tells us Joseph could not control himself and he cried. He's moved by Judah's speech and has seen now that Judah has changed. And some of those old emotions are certainly stirred up during this interaction, and they finally come to a head, and that's when he cries and reveals himself. Now, if you remember back in chapter 41, verse 51, uh, Joseph says, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. Now, he's talking about that when he was naming his children, Uh, But when he says that, it doesn't truly mean that he's actually forgotten it. Like, he doesn't remember that it happens. It means that God has healed him from the pain that was associated with those events. And as I've had the chance to sit down with uh, lots of different people over the past year and hear some of their stories, one really consistent thing that I hear is that most people are dealing with some sort of trauma. Now, I want to define trauma as not necessarily the event itself that took place, but as a lasting response to a deeply disturbing or distressing event. So, for example, all of the events that Joseph had gone through, his brothers betraying him, selling him into slavery, being thrown into prison, and so on, those were all very traumatic events and were the cause of the trauma he carried long after those events. And while we know that Joseph had been healed of all of his trauma, it seems that for most people I talk to, this isn't the case yet. They still have it, they still carry it around, plan to have it around for their entire lives, and in a lot of cases actually refuse to acknowledge it As trauma and something that they should seek healing for. In fact, I think many of us carry around uh, what I can only refer to as an Elsa mentality with our trauma. So a lot of you parents probably uh, know where I'm going with this, and I'm referring to her first bit of bad advice. Perhaps you remember it from the song. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal Don't feel, don't let them know. And I think that this is the message that most people cling to. We push it down, we ignore it, and we simply accept the defeat. But we know that Joseph was a changed man and wasn't struggling with his trauma. But the text doesn't tell us if there was any sort of process that he went through or if God just simply miraculously took it away. Both are certainly possible. But I want to explore some ways that you and I can attempt to heal from the pain. But as we go through these steps, I want to make sure that you know that I'm not simply saying, uh, just check these boxes and you're healed, or this is some sort of magic formula with three easy steps. Simply saying that uh, through Scripture, we, I do believe we see an avenue that God can use to help us in our struggles. And if we want to heal from trauma, we're going to go through three R's here. The first thing we can do is recognize. We have to admit to ourselves that we are indeed dealing with trauma that needs healing. I can't tell you how common it is that we simply just try to disregard it. But the truth is that nobody heals when they ignore See, ignoring something doesn't ever make it heal. We need to process it, which means we first have to acknowledge it so that we can process whatever happened. And while we don't see Joseph go through uh, this in our passage, uh, we do see it with the Apostle Paul. And this is a guy who, just like Joseph, experienced an incredible amount of trauma in his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, we see Paul trying to uplift the Corinthians, and he goes on to explain some of his sufferings. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage word for word, but you can make note of that, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. But I'm going to summarize it, some of it here. Paul tells us that he was imprisoned, that he had countless beatings, often near death. Five times he got 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten by rods. says that once he was stoned, and we're not talking about uh, recreationally. That was a form of execution at the time. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was hungry, thirsty, cold, He faced every sort of trauma we could imagine. Emotional, physical, spiritual. Things were not easy for the Apostle Paul. But the more he talked about it, the more he processed it, and was more of his authentic self. See, Paul never ignored the trauma that he carried, because he knew that when we ignore, the wound is still there. And as Christians, we're never going to heal In isolation, we always heal in community. And this doesn't just mean that we go and air it out to anyone who's going to listen or we go on Facebook and write about it. We look for people we trust, trusted brothers and sisters. And this is actually one reason why we love our family churches. So these are smaller, more intimate communities of believers who want to join with you and pray with you and listen to you and be there for you when you need to process and you need to heal. So in healing from the pain, first we recognize and we process. The second step is to request. That's our second R. We need to go to God and we need to ask for healing. And again, we see this in the life of Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we learn about Paul and his thorn, Now, we don't exactly know what this thorn is that Paul was referring to. Uh, There's lots of different theories of what it could have been. Uh, It could have been some sort of demonic harassment. It could have been a physical affliction like poor eyesight, uh, malaria, fevers, severe migraines. It could have been Paul's opponents who continued to persecute him. Uh, It could have been some inner psychological struggles, uh, like the grief over his early persecution of the church. It could have been sorrow over Israel's unbelief, or just continuing temptations. So, all that to say, we don't know. But regardless of what it was, it was something that Paul had been carrying around with him. So I ask if any of us are carrying around a thorn. Now, some of you might think that your thorn is sitting next to you, but that's not what we're talking about. But if there is trauma that's in your life and you've recognized it, the next step is to go to God and ask him to take it away. I think it's really shocking that we just so often ex we don't uh, ask god to do something with it when he's the only one that truly can paul tells us in second corinthians 12 verse 8 three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me so paul didn't simply acknowledge it he pleaded with god to take it away he desperately wanted to be healed And it says three times, but we don't believe that three times meant that he just started on Thursday and went through Saturday and then just kind of called it a day and rolled over. Uh, I'd like to believe that these were probably three long seasons or periods of time where he was in fervent prayer, pleading with God to remove it. And he pleaded with God until he got his answer. And then that leads us to the third R of pursuing healing from trauma. First, we recognize or acknowledge it so we can process it. Then we request that God take it away and ask for healing. And then the third thing we do is we run. The third R is run. We run to the Father. We pursue God with our whole hearts, knowing that he is ultimately the comforter and the keeper of our souls. So this idea of running is actually what the world tells us to do also, but we know that the world always leads us to a cliff. The world has us running to things like drugs, sex, food, hobbies, anything like that that can either numb or medicate the problem without actually healing it. But we know that God doesn't want to simply numb us or distract us. God is in the business of transformation. So we need to run to God, knowing that all other roads lead to destruction. We know he's compassionate, and as we run to him, our trust deepens. Just like in the case of Paul pleading with God, he continued to pursue healing until God gave him his answer. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us the answer he received. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, as we heal from trauma by recognizing it, requesting healing, and running to Jesus, we come to realize, just as Paul did, that through God we don't just heal, we can actually become stronger. And not because we ourselves are stronger, but because he becomes stronger in us. And then the last thing I'll say about trauma before we move on is that while whatever has happened to you and has caused the trauma, it may or may not have been your fault, but pursuing healing is your responsibility. So we move from the pain now to the penitence. And this is kind of a word that you would find really deep down in your thesaurus. And it has some synonyms that include regret, remorse, shame, guilt, all of those types of things. And as we read in the passage about Joseph, in verse 3 he finally reveals himself and he says, you can look at verse 3 if you'd like to, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. It says they were dismayed at his presence. Looking to some other translations might be a little bit helpful there. Uh, The NIV in that case uses the word terrified, and the King James Version uses the word troubled. So this makes me think of the guilt and the shame that the brothers must have been dealing with. In fact, we know that they were dealing with shame and guilt, because back in chapter 42, you might remember Reuben saying to his brothers, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So while at that specific moment of the reveal, there were probably lots of different emotions going through the brothers' heads, I'm going to focus on the guilt and the shame. Now, I'll quickly differentiate the two because they are similar but slightly different. See, we carry guilt for what we have done or maybe sometimes even for what has been done to us. But shame is more about how we feel about ourselves. So we feel guilty about what we've done, and we feel shame in who we are. And when we get stuck in this guilt and shame, the problem is is that it clouds our identity and our focus without us even really knowing that that's what's happening so, we can develop what I call a shame-based mindset that can have some effects that are even hard to recognize. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it tells us to be sober-minded. And I think most of us often equate uh, that by meaning that we just simply shouldn't be drunk, right, because we're so familiar with that word Sober. Uh, But what it means in that context is that we as Christians need to be spiritually vigilant to watch out for attacks from the devil. Not allowing our minds to be clouded by anything that could possibly distract us. So when I think about uh, my own life in this area of shame, since I'm not immune to this, um, I kind of think about the idea of failure. I think that's a common one for so many people. See, for me, nothing brings more shame than the thought of failure. And then the times I have failed, they affect me so much that it actually shapes the way that I operate in all avenues of my life. Some of you guys know that I am a planner and a preparer. A planner and a preparer to kind of a weird degree sometimes. So for example, um, I'm using this iPad for my notes, which I charged all night long, but continued charging on my drive here, just in case, right? (laughs) Um, But just in case, I have an entire printed copy of these notes, should that fail. I've got my phone up here, which has another copy, just in case. And it's also shared on a cloud drive that many people in this room have access to and probably don't know, just in case. So you can laugh, I know it's weird. But see, preparing isn't a bad thing, but my motives for it aren't always completely based on me wanting to give my best to God and to his people. Unfortunately, I have to acknowledge that part of the reason for this type of weird preparing comes from a shame-based mindset that I carry. And so if we aren't careful, the shame or the guilt that we carry turns into an idol, it turns into a stumbling block, And it actually prevents us from experiencing the freedom that we have in Christ. So if what you have done still haunts you and makes you shameful, then this is something that you need to heal from. And so we're going to go through another set of three R's that we can use if we're struggling with guilt or shame. The first one is repent. The first R is repent. So remember, the guilt could be from what you've done. In, case, in that case, you need to repent for those specific actions. Or it could be from shame from who you believe you are, if that is anything but a new creation in Christ. Please understand that I'm not saying that you are ever repenting because of something that somebody else did to you. That's not what I'm saying. We repent when we lack the faith to believe that we are a new creation. See, you may have been something in the past, and something may have happened to you in the past. That will never go away. It's part of your story, just like Joseph's trauma was part of his story. And while he has forgotten the effects, he didn't forget what actually happened. Or maybe a real-life example here. You may have been an alcoholic. You are now a Christian who has struggled with alcohol and may even still struggle with it in the present. But that's not who you are. See, your shame and your regret is part of your testimony, but it is not your identity. uh, But too often, though, I think we have a low view of repentance, so I'll get back to that. I think about uh, basically on a daily basis when my son leaves his socks on the floor. I mean, it happens 20 times a week. And every time I remind him, he gives me the same answer, sorry. And then the very next day, or maybe within a couple hours, what happens again? Socks on the floor, right? And if they're not on the floor, they're in the backyard because the dog took them off the floor and took them outside. So that is not repentance. So true repentance first involves grief over the sin. So a true sorrow, recognizing that it was God who you actually sinned against. Then repentance includes a confession over the specific sin so, no generalizing, but particular and transparent confession. It might sound like this God, I repent of my unbelief that causes me to focus more on preventing my shame of failure when I know that I should be seeking to glorify you in all that I do and not myself. See how that sounds different? And then it includes a forsaking of the sin, not just as an act of emotion but as an act of the will. You may remember at the beginning of the chapter when Joseph was overwhelmed by emotion and that caused him to reveal himself. The reason it happened was because of the shift he saw in his brother Judah. Not just in his words, but in his actions. See, Judah was one of the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery for selfish reasons, has now turned and is now selflessly willing to take Benjamin's place for the sake of their father Jacob. He was now willing to lay his life down for another. So after we repent, the next step is we need to refocus. So we repent and then we refocus. That's our second R. This means that instead of constantly turning our eyes towards the things that bring us guilt and shame, we turn our eyes towards the one who has the power to remove those things from our lives and actually heal. You've probably heard us sing the song a thousand times. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth that's the things of this world, the sin, the hurt, the guilt, the shame, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, we can't keep our minds focused on the past and on our failures. We keep our minds focused on the things of God. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, we displace the things of this world and the things of of the enemy with the things of God. God. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon says, Having made Jesus his all, he shall find all in Jesus. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. So we repent of the guilt and the shame. We refocus on Christ. And finally, our third R, we receive his grace. We receive his grace. Remember earlier we talked about Paul and his thorn, the answer that the Lord gave him. My grace is sufficient for you. See, in order to heal from guilt or shame, we need to receive the grace of God. Paul Tripp says, grace is radical. It says radical things about you radical things about God and offers you radical help that is found nowhere else. So no matter how deep your sin, God's grace is deeper. No matter how great your guilt, God's forgiveness is greater. And no matter how deep your shame, God's grace is sufficient. I believe that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it very eloquently. He says, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end, so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God In Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. And so now we come to our last section. Remember, we started by talking about the pain and how we can attempt to heal from trauma. We first recognize and process what happened. We then request and ask God for healing only He can bring. And then we run to Him as we pursue God with our whole hearts. And then we moved on to the penitence, where we talked about the guilt and the shame that can cloud our minds and our actions. And we handle that first with repentance of sin and shame. Then we refocus on Christ, which keeps us sober-minded. And then finally, we receive the grace that he's promised and gives so freely. So now we move on to the providence. And we've alluded to Uh, the providence in some previous weeks, and we've even mentioned it a couple times, uh, but this idea comes up once again. So if you haven't seen or heard this word before, uh, we can start looking at this word kind of how I would lead my third grade students in looking at a new word, one that we may not know like providence. So I would first instruct them to put on safety glasses. And then we take out our word hammer. And then if we chip away at that word providence a little bit, you may see or hear the familiar English word provide. See, providence, provide, right? Some of you guys are like, oh, that's how that works. So that word is actually made up of two smaller words that have a Latin base. The first being the word pro, which means forward or on behalf of. And then the second word, which the second half of the word, vide, is actually uh, pronounced vide in Latin, and it means to see. So providence means to see forward or on behalf of. And in fact, a great way to look at the idea of God's providence is we can see it as kind of an intersection between God's sovereignty and God's wisdom. It's where they come together. So we say that God isn't just powerful, but he's also executing a good and perfect plan for his glory and for our good. Piper says it very clearly. He says God's providence means God is not only powerful, but purposeful. And as we followed Joseph's story, like I said, he's alluded to this idea and mentioned uh, the idea of providence, even though he hasn't used the word. And he does it again here in chapter 45. So we talked about how, uh, as he revealed to his brothers, that the brothers were dismayed or troubled or frightened. So if we look back at verse 5, he says, and this is Joseph, And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you have sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And if you skip down a little bit to verse 8, he says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So at this point in the story... Joseph had come to realize that this wasn't all just luck or bad luck or chance. Everything that had happened to him, the highs, the lows, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the ugly, were all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's providential plan. And God used all of these events to, as Joseph said, preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive of you many survivors. So it was all always part of God's plan. See, God in his providence worked this out so that he could use a guy like Joseph to steward over the land and do it well and store up during the times of plenty so that many would live during the time of famine. Because remember, there was now seven years of famine and we were two years in. And it's interesting to see or to note that God's providence is not seen in the middle of the trials and the struggles. It was only seen after. We don't see how God's plan is working until we see the way that it's worked out. We could say that providence is only seen in the rear-view mirror. I'm sure if you guys were all to examine some of your own lives, you could probably find some examples of ways that God has shown providence in your life. So, for a quick example, just one that, could, that came to me, I think back to uh, when Catherine and I got married. This was back in early 2007, Uh, We had heard from some friends that they had moved to this city called Maricopa, Arizona. And housing was affordable, and they were going to go plant a church. And so we thought that this would just be an amazing opportunity to get out to own a home and to serve in the way of starting a new church. So we moved from California to a new city on a new street with several friends who lived in houses on that street with us, and we were ready. The plan seemed perfect. The economy had already turned a little bit before we started moving, but then it really started turning for the worse. That church started, kind of, and it quickly failed. And then those friends who we lived near quickly made very savvy business decisions and short-sold their homes and moved away. So now we're in this new place with a house that's worth nothing. No real ministry, very few friends. Um, I was still kind of a loser trying to get things together. And in that time, I would kind of get it together and start going through college, and I was able to graduate and start teaching at an elementary school. I'm not going to do it, Josh. And there, I would end up meeting a really cool young family that had four children. And we'd get to chat briefly at different school events and hear about a church that they had planted. And uh, later, I would get an opportunity to teach all those kids. And establish a relationship. And then at the right time, we decided to visit that church. And that was this church. And even the, like, the timing of the specific day we decided to come is crazy. But I don't have the time for, to go into those details. But we find a church home. So Catherine and I came out here to Arizona... Two, one of the reasons was to help build a church with friends. But God in his providence knew that all of those events were leading us here to help build this church with these friends. See, we could have never known, we could have never imagined, but we weren't supposed to. In the past, it all looks so clear, because it, were, because it was for God. See, he's always executing a perfect plan for his glory and for our good. And it brings to mind uh, John 13, verse 7, in which Jesus says, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So as we move into our final set of ours. These are what happens when we acknowledge God's providence as Joseph did in this passage. So the first thing is we relinquish. We relinquish our control. So we come to realize that since God is working a perfect plan, I don't need to fret or worry about my imperfect plan. I don't have to prepare like it's up to me Because the truth is, it isn't. I don't have to worry, I don't have to cling to the pain, I don't cling to my past, I understand who's in control and it's certainly not me. But this doesn't mean that we become lazy and just turn ourselves into some sort of spiritual jellyfish that just blobs around and does nothing. We still be prepared, we still seek excellence and we be proactive, there's nothing wrong with that. We do our work as we are doing it unto the Lord. But we can trust ultimately that it's in God's hands. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So after we relinquish control, the second thing we do is we rest. The second one is rest. We rest within the wisdom of his plan like that song we sang this morning. See, we know that he is powerful, he's in control, he's good, and he's working all things out for his glory. Psalm 39, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And Proverbs 12, 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So since God is omnipotent, all that happens must be the result of his will. And since he is eternal, he's not waiting for the uncaused or the unexpected. And since he's good, all created reality is an outpouring of his love. See, we can rest with God because we can trust him. We acknowledge that there is not the slightest detail that he has overlooked. So, if we relinquish our control and we rest within his plan, there's only one thing left to do, and that is rejoice. So, our third is rejoice. We're told in First Thess- Thessalonians five verse sixteen, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. James tells us to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And Paul told us in Romans 5, yes, this is the third week in a row. You'll hear this reference. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope, what does hope do? Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when we trust God and we trust him completely, we rejoice no matter the circumstance. Knowing that if it's from him, that it must have good in store. So I could say that I don't know, I don't know, why God allowed you to experience whatever it is that's brought you trauma. And I don't know why God has allowed you to carry the guilt and the shame of what you've done or who you've been tricked into believing that you are. But God does. And he has a plan for your life, and we know that it's not just a plan, that it's a perfect plan. We know that he's greater than all of those things. See, he uses our trials, as Augustine said, to prove us and improve us. And as we get closer to wrapping this up, I think it was said very beautifully by a lady named Amy Carmichael, who was an Irish missionary to India. She says, let us not be surprised when we have to face difficulties. When the wind blows hard on a tree, the roots stretch and grow stronger. Let it be so with us. Let us not be weaklings, yielding to every wind that blows, but strong in spirit to resist. So if you're hanging on to trauma, let's seek God to heal. We need to recognize it so we can process. We need to request and ask God to heal. And then we run to God and away from the world. And if you're clinging to guilt and the shame, let's repent of it. Let's refocus on Christ and receive his grace. And all of that with the goal of clinging to God's providence, which allows us to relinquish our control. Rest within his plan, and finally rejoice because he's good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word which never lies, your promises that never fail, and your grace that is sufficient for all. We thank you that through you we can heal and can be made whole again. We know that in you, we are truly a new creation. We are not defined by our trauma. We are not bound by guilt and shame. We are children of God. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Please help us to rest in that truth this morning. Please use our pain and our weakness to shape us and to mold us for your purpose and for your glory. And through it all, let us never lose sight of your goodness and your faithfulness. Please let us rest in your providence every day of our lives so that no matter what comes, we can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.